Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bridging Chicago. I'm Savannah Roundtree, the law clerk here at SATC, and joining with me today, we have Aisha Akhtar. Thank you so much for joining us, Aisha. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Aisha is the Director of Education at the Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Chicago, and we're really excited to talk about that. But first, we're going to start back at the beginning a little bit. So I saw that you um, attended Loyola Chicago. Um, I'm currently a law student there. So always good to see a fellow um, alum. Um, And you got your Bachelor in Business Administration and Accounting, correct? Did you always know you wanted to go into business? How did you come about deciding yeah. on that? Yeah, I, it's quite an interesting story how I went from A to Z. <laughs> um, I always wanted to do finance, okay. so I, I enrolled in the School of Business at Loyola as mm-hmm. my undergrad. I uh, ended up in accounting because at the, at the time, the finance industry just wasn't very great for women. Right. Uh, so I moved over to accounting. I figured that would be a very stable job. Mm-hmm. Um, accounting is very, very hard. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had to really work hard to do well. Uh, I got my CPA license finally and uh, worked for a few years yeah. uh, in the accounting world. And mm-hmm. then I was like, I don't really like doing this anymore. I got to the point where I was creating tax shelters for accounting for companies Uh in the Caribbean (laughs) didn't really feel like this was fulfilling. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, after working as a CPA for a little while, I know that you, um, eventually got your, is it a master's in public health? Yes. In health policy administration from UIC. Correct. Um, and so you were saying, uh, being a CPA wasn't really fulfilling anymore. So was there like something specific that was driving you to health policy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read the uh, the book called The Alchemist. Okay. Have you read it? No, I haven't. It's an amazing book. I read it in one sitting on an afternoon, and I realized that I was in the wrong field. Okay. Uh, what I took away from that book was that everything that we do in life is a stepping stone mm-hmm. for something greater. Right. And the idea of having a, a purpose, a moral purpose, a moral compass. And, I, you know, I come from a family of physicians where I knew that I did not want to do medicine. Mm-hmm. I really can't stand blood <laughs> Yeah, that's at probably all. a prerequisite. <laughs> yeah, so I, that's, that, I was out. Um, so I really was intrigued by public health, just the concept of public health, uh, health promotion, disease prevention, and I realized that is where I wanted to be. Okay. You focused on culturally sensitive approaches to healthcare, and so can you tell me a little bit more about what that means? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so even uh, so, grad school was a really long journey for me. I had both of my kids during that time, okay, and so I went super part time. <laughs> sure, <laughs> probably seven years. Um, so over that amount of time, I got to learn a lot about mm-hmm. what the palette of public health was at that moment, and what I what I was getting at at that time was uh, just increasing awareness of public health issues in culturally sensitive areas where things just weren't being discussed. So after the end of grad school, I co-founded a nonprofit with a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. and we focused on uh, building models of reproductive health education for Muslim communities because we knew that that's not something that was happening. And then we learned that 
sex ed was also being removed from Catholic schools, mm -hmm. and then it was being removed from private schools. Right. And so at the, the greater we learned about it, we just realized that this was actually a real problem. Mm -hmm. So that's what led me to that thesis. You learned it was a very much more prevalent problem. Yeah. You know, I think it just sort of snowballed from there, yes. thinking about that. Yeah. And um, so then after getting your master's in public health, you were working with um, a couple of different places. I saw you were working with uh, Power Through Choices as a data collector and then eventually ended up doing grant review as well with um, Patient-Centered patient Outcomes Research Institute. Mm -hmm. And so um, just tell me a little bit about those positions. About um, It sort of seems like data collection might be a little closer to the business and accounting that you were familiar with. And was there like a transition period from working in, yeah. you know, with numbers to with Yeah, a little bit. I mean, in grad school, so many of my professors were, would tell me that you are just like a whole different league. Like the fact that you understand business, you can bring that to healthcare mm -hmm. is, is, a, is an asset. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. The data collecting part was, was under the umbrella of the nonprofit that I had mm -hmm. co-founded. Okay. So we were doing some work in Oklahoma city mm -hmm. actually to see like what some of the, the data was in various different areas. Sure. So that was just kind of like a snippet yeah. of time. Um, and then I think you were referencing the PCORI, the grant mm -hmm. reviewing. So that was a really cool project that I got involved with. PCORI is a really large organization, and they provide grant funding to all kinds of different uh, organizations. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I got involved reviewing grants for the town that I was living in just by co complete okay. coincidence. Mm -hmm. My town was uh, applying for municipal grants mm -hmm. to create um, sidewalk bumpers. <laughs> okay. So they're, you know, like when yeah. they build these big sidewalks and they put flowers mm -hmm. and so they were trying to make the city more walkable sure which it is now because I approved that yeah. grant. <laughs> so that was a really cool process so that was a really great opportunity for me to see what grant writing was like yeah, how the process mm -hmm. works yeah and so then you've been with the Chicago Epilepsy Foundation since 2012 um, I see that you were first an education coordinator and also that you are a master trainer in diversity and cultural mm -hmm. awareness are those um, and you're currently the director of education so are those um, titles that you sort of hold concurrently and are always doing yeah so uh, the epilepsy foundation of greater Chicago is an affiliate of mm -hmm. the national okay. uh, epilepsy foundation of America and they all of the programs that we provide are underwritten by the CDC okay so every year they will send out uh, requests for proposals mm -hmm. RFPs for various different uh, data points that they want to study some years it could be african-american some years it could be asian-american and mm -hmm. epilepsy um, that time that I received that master training that was specifically focused on cultural okay so that's something that like mm -hmm. the national foundation knows so it's sort of like a certification right that you have. okay right yeah yep so that was something that I got involved in right away okay so how did you um eventually or originally get involved with the Chicago with the epilepsy foundation mm -hmm. uh it was literally a just coincidence mm -hmm. I looking for a health <laughs> education job okay um I was leaving my nonprofit and was looking for something where I knew I, I wanted to be an educator I believe in mm -hmm. and, and health promotion and disease prevention so mm -hmm. it literally fell in my lap okay mm -hmm. so what were some of the um things that you were focused on when you were the education coordinator mm -hmm. i'll 
jump around a little bit. So as director, mm -hmm. I'm responsible for 43 counties. And so as okay. part of being an education coordinator, I had to coordinate with various different counties and schools and school districts and be mm -hmm. able to call them up and offer the seizure first aid training mm -hmm. to the schools. So okay. at that time, we were really focused on just getting the word out, mm -hmm. kind of growing the program. In one year, I think we grew the program 400%. Wow. It, we just kind of blew mm -hmm. up. Yeah, so um, what are the main goals of the Epilepsy Foundation as a whole? Mm -hmm. Well, we have three basic tenets. We provide case management, mm -hmm. advocacy, and education. Okay. Education being mm -hmm. what I manage. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen that there is both community-based and school-based education mm -hmm. that the foundation focuses on. Um, so can you tell me a little bit how those programs differ? Sure. So here's the thing. that there most people don't realize that there are more than 20, 30 different types of seizures. I think mm -hmm. ma the majority of people probably think that a convulsive seizure is epilepsy or is a seizure, and they think that that's it. Mm -hmm. But they don't realize that, you know, you know, someone could be twisting their arm or someone could be tapping at their chest or staring off into space, and all of those could be seizures. Mm -hmm. So what we were finding is that this is obviously happening all over us, mm -hmm. and it's especially happening in schools and undetected. Right. unnoticed. Teachers are confusing seizure activity with ADHD or with someone who's just misbehaving. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of learning was lost, a lot of missed opportunities of diagnosing. And so the CDC basically wrote a program to provide that seizure training for school personnel, okay. to provide that seizure recognition and training. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the basic tenet of that program. Great. And so is there anything different that you do in schools versus communities, or is it just about outreach? Uh, yeah, a little bit uh, more about outreach. Mm -hmm. um, this, the school training has a little bit more information about um, kind of how you bring that information into the classroom, maybe mm -hmm. how you would relate that to students. Uh, if you were to create a plan, let's say if a, if a teacher had a student in the classroom that had a seizure, I would give the floor an opportunity to talk about, okay, let's discuss what would happen if you know Sally Smith had a seizure how would you all resolve that so it's a little bit more hands-on in that regard mm -hmm. whereas the community is a little bit more high level okay and then I also saw in your bio that the um, your culturally sensitive approaches have a play in here and so how does that work with um, the epilepsy training well for example in the Hispanic community we've come to learn that epilepsy is not very well understood okay. as a medical condition mm -hmm. as a brain disorder it is really regarded as a mental condition or something wrong with a per person spiritually. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that like, once you kind of go into different communities, you understand mm -hmm. what, what the pulse is and what's happening and what people sense about epilepsy. And so that's kind of how we approach. So we try to meet people where they're at and then right. provide them with the facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then I also noticed when looking at sort of your LinkedIn pro profile that you also have a like long history of working with uh, various different fitness groups and um, nonprofits that are more focused towards that. And so um, it just seems like it's a really important part of your life. I just wanted to talk mm -hmm. about, um, you know, how that came to be, how that works out yeah. for you. Yeah, that's a kind of a tangent in my life <laughs> because it's so random. But I think it's, it also stems from that book, The Alchemist, which mm -hmm. is that everything we do should kind of just build upon something else. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was 11 or 12, I used to make home fitness videos <laughs> that I would just <laughs> record myself. And 
I think I think one day I, I was just working with a trainer and mm-hmm. I just realized that I want to be that trainer. I want to mm-hmm. be the person that helps someone become the best version of themselves. Yeah. And it's a very public health concept as well. So I studied for the exam. I took the exam. I, pa- mm-hmm. I passed and then I started just working part-time as a personal trainer. I taught classes at Orange Theory or mm-hmm. I taught my own classes yeah. on the side. Yeah, so, you know, you're, um, you're a mother of two. You have, like, this... Um, you're the director at a um, nonprofit, and you do all these. Like, how do you just manage to balance all of those things? Do you find it difficult to balance all these different aspects of your life? Yes. So when I became the director, it was because I my predecessor moved, mm-hmm. and so I took her role. And it was really an exciting time for me to move from a part-time person to a full-time person mm-hmm. finally in my life. Um, and. I used to always have this idea that women could have it all mm-hmm. and that you could be a superwoman and you could have it all, but I've really come to realize that you can't. Okay. And um, if you can accept the fact that you can have everything at 80%, mm-hmm. then you can. Yeah. And, I, and I've just adjusted my expectations. And instead of just having everything at 100%, I have everything at 80 I delegate. Mm-hmm. I rely on people, and I I prioritize things that are really important to me. So Mm -hmm. my exercise, my working out, I'm training for a marathon. Like Those are things that are non-negotiable to me. Mm -hmm. And once those are done, then I can accomplish anything else. From part-time to full-time, but you also had different um, duties under this director position. So what was the most challenging aspect of that transition for you? Oh, wow. Um, A couple things. Uh, For one was learning how to manage people Mm -hmm. uh, that was eye-opening for me and just recognizing that different people have different needs and you Mm -hmm. cannot manage your team in one way I have a variety of people on Mm -hmm. my team that report to me and everyone has different needs and so that that forced me to do a lot of self-learning and a Mm -hmm. lot of Harvard Business (laughs) Review articles on how to be a better manager Mm -hmm. I hope I'm a better manager than when I first started. Yeah, I get a lot of, um, or several people have come in here and said that learning how to manage people is actually sometimes the most difficult part of getting a job because it's often not something that you're taught, like you are in your position because you have a master's in public health, mm-hmm. and you know that doesn't teach you how right, to do right. you know, people management as well. Right. Well, and my husband and I always joke that because we have, well, now they're teenagers, but because we have teenage sons, that mm-hmm. that's like the best experience in learning how to manage people, yeah. is that if you can manage <laughs> teenage boys, then you can pretty much manage. Yeah, yeah. that's probably that's seems correct. I wouldn't <laughs> want the job of managing any teenage boys, so um, I'll leave that to you. And then recently I saw that the um, Seizure Smart School Act was passed, which will um, take effect beginning on January 1st, 2020. And it looks like the foundation had sort of a hand in making that happen. So you, could you talk a little bit about For that? For sure. So it's actually effective July 1st of 2020. Oh, really? mm-hmm. So we absolutely had a hand in it. Myself, my CEO, and one other person in Springfield, we wrote the Seizure Smart School Act together, mm-hmm. and we're the fourth affiliate of all the affiliates to have done so. It passed in lightning speed. We filed the bill in January, and it was signed by the governor in July. Okay. And that bill will basically make my seizure first aid training required for all school personnel in Illinois. Okay, great. Public school. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so had you ever done something like that before? No, that... <laughs> 
I mean, you asked me about my most challenging mm-hmm. thing. I definitely managing people, but I think that this would be a close second. And mm-hmm. but it was also the most fun I've ever had. Really, I mean, just the iterations of writing the bill. What do we keep? What do we not take out? How do you know? I had to testify at at a hearing. Yeah, that was really exciting. So you said you were the fourth affiliate to do that. So does the um, National Foundation sort of give you guidelines on what to do, or did you sort of have to start from scratch on your own with that? A little bit, a little bit of both. Uh, there is definitely a good network and a good mm-hmm. support system, um, but I think we had a really good foundation mm-hmm. on, on our own, and we kind of just knew based on my own experience of being in the schools. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, I've listened to teachers right. for the last seven years. I know what they're looking for. I know what's reasonable and what's not. How long did that process take for you guys to, from like when you began writing to when it got passed? Just from January to July. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I testified <laughs> once in March, and mm-hmm. yeah, that was it. Yeah. What was the process of testifying like for you? Oh, it looks just like it, it does on CNN. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. Um, there's a room of all these people, you know, looking at me, and I. I, you know, I was very nervous, but then the more I realized that it was, it's a collaboration. It's mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats working together t- to understand what the bill was. A lot of times lawmakers pass bills and they don't even know what they're about. Mm-hmm. And so they were asking me very basic questions about what I do, what the training's for, what the purpose of it was. Mm-hmm. And once they understood that, they got over the fact that it's a mandate and because most people don't like mandates. Right. Um, so that was a really cool experience. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of eased me a little bit that, you know, it's not it's not mm-hmm. about me. It's about yeah. them understanding the bill. Yeah. Did you see a lot of crossover between, like, educating just, you know, people in classrooms about seizures and then you're just sort of using Absolutely. the same information? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just learning about what they thought their misconceptions were mm-hmm. and breaking them down one at a time. So you've been working in the Chicago sort of public health field for... Uh, over 15 years now what changes have you seen like during that time I think to me what I've seen the most is uh, the public health is more a part of the it's more of the fabric of the conversation Mm -hmm. now I think people understand it a little bit better my grad school professor always used to tell me that there's a public health implication in every single thing we do. And mm-hmm. I never really understood that until these times, like from it's the water that you drink, from getting on the train and being sneezed on, or mm-hmm. you know the clothes that you wear. There is a public health implication in everything. And I think that, especially epilepsy being a multidisciplinary disease, I think people are starting to understand that things are all related. Mm-hmm. When you say multidisciplinary disease, what do you mean by that? Well, for example, uh, over 30% of people with epilepsy are also on the spectrum of autism. Okay. Uh, people with epilepsy also have mental health issues, mm-hmm. depression, anxiety, low self-esteem. Um, so there's a lot of things that are going together. We would call those comorbidities. Mm-hmm. So now that you've got this, um, the Seizure Smart School Act passed, is there... Um, there are future endeavors that you guys are looking to implement. What's sort of the future of the Epilepsy Foundation and sort of your goals for the education of it? Mm-hmm. Well, so for now, because I, I have a little bit of breathing room before mm-hmm. the effective date, uh, I'm working really hard to set up a foundation mm-hmm. of which, so if I get requests from schools from the, you know the entire state, I'm able to handle them. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of trainings virtually. We're still doing our community training. You know, I could come to your law firm and do a training as well. Um, so we're still kind of moving at that same speed that we were moving. Um, as far as the foundation overall, we're just doing more of the same. You know, mm-hmm. we want to reach um, the world and just share 
information about epilepsy raise awareness. A lot of people don't know that one in 26 people can develop epilepsy, that one in 10 people will ever have a single seizure in their lifetime. It's the fourth most common brain disorder. So I feel like until people know those things, Mm -hmm. there's still so much work to do. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know any of those Yeah, (laughs) there you go. um, Yeah, I mean, do you like struggle to separate this from just sort of like your daily life to sort of like, um, like from your job because it is so important. It seems like you're just walking around like educating people all the time. Yes, you know, it's really interesting that you say that uh, when I first started working here, because I'm not a person with epilepsy, mm-hmm. I I felt it was really tough to get some to get buy-in sometimes mm-hmm. when I was talking about it in communities because people would say, well, you don't really know what it's like. But having learned so much and, and experienced so much, I, I think that, and also coming from a public health background, mm-hmm. I think that I am the person who is you know able to send right. the message to raise awareness that you're probably gonna have to assist someone in a, in a seizure with first aid than CPR. Mm-hmm. That's probably more likely. It's more likely that you'll see someone having a seizure, you know, than, you know, any other sort of emergency situation. It's just more, it's just very common. Mm-hmm. Do a lot of the people that work for the foundation have epilepsy? Is there some reason that people, when you're talking about it, expect that you would have it or just? we? I do have a few coworkers really? and a few board members who do have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's such a wide spectrum. That's another thing. There are people who are very severely impacted mm-hmm. by epilepsy, and then there are people who uh, have a very high quality of life and right. can you know, function very well, and no one would ever know. Right. Well, just when you said that it was difficult for you to get buy-in because you didn't have epilepsy, I... I uh, found that really interesting because I don't typically think that people who work for foundations like have to have, yeah. you know. Um, and I think that that might also speak to your earlier question about what things have changed in the mm-hmm. landscape of public health. I think people are just more open to talking about things. They're not so, there's a stigma with mm-hmm. epilepsy and I think it's just becoming, there is still a stigma. It's just probably less than it was before. So just before we sort of wrap up this conversation, um, just give everyone um, an overview of what the foundation does and then also sort of how they can get in touch with you if they want their own um, seminars or whatever Awesome. You call them. Yeah, perfect. So we're at epilepsychicago.org. We are located on state and Washington, okay, super close. Yeah. We provide case management, advocacy, and education. So a person who either maybe they themselves are diagnosed with epilepsy or on behalf of their family member can call up and speak to a case manager and just get additional support and services in Mm -hmm. addition to whatever they're getting from their physician. All of our services are free. We've never charged, whether it's an education training or case management. Uh, We can help with IEP planning for children, um, getting a seizure action plan set in stone. Um, and they can just go to that website or they can call the office and reach me and I can, um, my, some, either myself or someone on my team mm-hmm. can come out and do a free training. Okay. Um, so you never charge anyone for anything. Do you have to personally, is your grant writing experience still applicable now or is that something other people handle? Yes. Thankfully someone <laughs> else is handling that. <laughs> so he does a great job. Okay. But yeah. you guys are relying on grants and things yes, like that. Yeah. So. And private donations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so we're about to wrap up and my question I always end with is um, if someone is about to get into either the public health field or maybe into nonprofit work, what is some advice that you would give younger people before they start that journey? I would say to mix up your 
crowd of people that you hang out with. Mm-hmm. If you're always hanging out with public health people or always hanging out with accountants, you'll never know what's on the other side. And I learned that being in grad school, being a public health person with an accounting degree, having perspective that no one else had, bringing knowledge to the table, I think that just diversifying your your brain, mm-hmm. really, and just getting to know other people, mm-hmm. whether it's in the workspace or in the, in the private space, I think mm-hmm. that that just brings a more enriching experience. Yeah, I think sort of diversifying your knowledge base is really great advice to give. Yeah. Um, so that about covers it. So thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Had a really great conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. This is great. Yeah. for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.